When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, and welcome to Is It My ADHD? The podcast about what it really feels like to have attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. I'm Grace Timothy and I'm a writer and I wasn't diagnosed with ADHD until I was 37. I'd struggled with traits I now know to be ADHD all my life, but it wasn't until a routine hearing appointment with a doctor who happened to have ADHD himself that these traits were pieced together and it was suggested that I get referred for an assessment. Had it not been for that random moment with an audiologist, I'd still be undiagnosed now and still struggling, just like the two million women thought to have undiagnosed ADHD in the UK today. I want to better understand what ADHD feels like for women and non-binary people in whom ADHD is so often missed, thanks to the fact that the diagnostic criteria and research is all heavily skewed to the white male case study. I've therefore spoken to some incredible women about how ADHD affects their lives, exploring everything from friendship and work to dating and self-esteem. I've also pulled in some experts along the way to help us tackle the big questions from you and from my guests. Is it my ADHD when I ghost old friends, for example? Is it my ADHD when I break the photocopier at work? And is it my ADHD when I share nudes on Instagram? My hope is that we can spread awareness of ADHD in women and non-binary people, and that you'll find some comfort in knowing you're far from being alone. Because with the right support, we can be truly amazing. Today we're talking about grief, which is another area where we're often left to question, what is the ADHD and what is the grief? or I suppose the neurotypical experience of grief. As we tend to process our emotions more intensely, grief can exacerbate ADHD symptoms, but also the behaviours such as social withdrawal. A big loss can be the tipping point for someone with undiagnosed ADHD, proving to be that extra factor that makes masking untenable. But then presenting as someone who is grieving makes it harder, of course, to find a clear path to an ADHD diagnosis. I'm thrilled today to share this chat with Emily Dean, a radio co-host, host of the Walking the Dog podcast, and author of Everyone Died So I Got a Dog, which she wrote after losing her sister and both parents within a three-year period. She was diagnosed with ADHD just a few years ago. Emily, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us today. I'm thrilled to be here, and already I feel very seen, because full disclosure, I, was, I got this wrong, this meeting in order to record this podcast. I'd gone to the wrong link, and then I got into a panic, 
And then I just felt so calm because I knew I was recording a podcast called Is It My ADHD? And if ever <laughs> I would be supported and understood and not judged, it would be here. It's absolutely true. And I have to say, pretty much every episode has started with some sort of debacle. And it's normally down to me, to be fair. So yeah, you're definitely in a safe, welcoming space here. So I just wanted to talk to you about how you came to your diagnosis. What was the sort of process that led up to that point? Well, I suspect my trajectory and journey, I suppose, is is probably fairly typical with people who get an adult diagnosis, which is that sense my entire life that something was a little off. And it's a difficult thing to articulate, particularly with people who aren't familiar with ADHD, because of course, understandably, their response is, well, we all feel a little off. We all feel a bit different. And you keep saying, no, 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 this really is different. Something is strange about my wiring and different in the sense of emotional reactions, which I now know was a kind of flooding. I didn't get that at the time, but also obviously the more typical sort of um, things people associate with ADHD who aren't as familiar with it. So the time management just organisational issues, constant chaos, poor decision-making, um, very odd attitude towards planning and tasks and kind of eccentricities. And then I experienced um, loss, as you mentioned. My sister died very suddenly and tragically. She got diagnosed with um, stage four cancer and, and died far too swiftly. And then both my parents died. So my whole family had gone within three years and I had a really traumatic experience dealing with that, which felt like it was it went on for a long time. But yeah, the diagnosis happened. I was having a meltdown. I was writing my book when I was writing about my family and I just absolutely was having kind of a breakdown, it felt like. Partly to do with those memories being quite triggering, but I knew it was something else and it was time to deal with it. And a friend of mine, my best friend who's just very literate about mental health and, and is great about stuff like that. She said, look, very gently suggested, I wonder if maybe you should talk to someone, put me in touch with someone. And, and it was kind of life changing, really. And I don't know if this is something you'd experience. I'm interested to know. But did you have people saying to you throughout your life who had it? Do you think maybe you've got ADHD? I had it with, and I'm sure he won't mind me mentioning this, but I had um, Lee Mack, the comic I was working with. And he, I was interviewing him on my podcast and he sort of laughed and he sort of said, well, you've definitely got ADHD, <laughs> as if everyone would know that. And actually, he was quite surprised that it hadn't even occurred to me the way my brain worked. Yeah, so I did think about that. And then I, people had said it to me quite a lot throughout my life. No, honestly, because I don't know, I didn't know anyone who had ADHD until I, so I basically went in to have a hearing test and the audiologist was like, um, you've definitely got some sort of neurodivergent traits. Have you ever been assessed? And I was like, I am here for a hearing test, dude. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't even know what ADHD is. Um, and But he had it himself. So it's the same thing, really. It's that same recognition of yourself and someone else, isn't it, I think? Do you remember the kind of feelings of the things that you were aware of in yourself becoming stronger? So those traits really taking over? Yes, because I think my initial reaction, certainly when my sister died, was masking because that's very tied in with ADHD obviously that I felt um, I'd got it, it had become such an autopilot thing for me looking immaculate and focused and capable I suppose and the grief just felt like an extension of that 
which sounds sort of harsh, but in some way it just felt something I can't control has happened that I feel awful about. I'm going to have to pretend I'm okay about it. I didn't realize I was doing it because you never are, are you? And I think how it manifested itself was a hyper-focus on the funeral, which funerals are very handy for people with ADHD because you park all your emotions and your trauma, your getting forensic and sort of slightly nightmarish about really irrelevant details. And my friends and, you know, everyone around me were amazing, sort of slightly indulging this. Um, and then once the funeral had gone, it 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 hit me. I I would sort of show my grief outwardly sometimes, but then I would have these moments when I would be I couldn't let anyone in. And I would come home and just, yeah, I used to call it my kitchen floor parties. I would literally lie on the floor and just sob. And it felt like I'm not gonna be able to come back from this. Everything about me was just kind of consumed with grief. I mean, it, it's a difficult thing to talk about because I don't want to sound like my experience of grief was far more intense than someone who's neurotypical because grief affects everyone, you know, in in various traumatic ways. But I think certainly for me, um, I would find it difficult to bounce back, you know, and there was also that sense of hiding it, which I think can be difficult. It was kind of the idea of having a good grief, you know, she's coped well. And then when my parents died again, you know, I felt very overwhelmed with, with those feelings of, but my parents are of an age where they would and should be dying. Why am I feeling like this? And I was kind of estranged from my dad and had a slightly troubled relationship with him. So again, feeling, but I'm not meant to be experiencing a big grief about this. Now I understand, of course you would experience, in a way your trauma's worse because you've not resolved things. But all I did was think, what will people think? They'll think I'm mad. They'll think I'm over emotional. So I sort of suppressed all that. And I think what happened, looking back on it now, and obviously with the, the brilliant you know, professionals I've talked to this about, mental health professionals, I think I'd so parked that grief that when I was writing the book and I was on my own and I was alone with my family again and almost had a license to be sad about it <laughs> because I was writing about it, I just came, the dams burst. And... I was in a really, really profoundly sort of, um, I was struggling really badly. And I started opening up to friends, but um, yeah, it took a while. And then of course, when I got the diagnosis, it, you know, I don't know how you felt when you got it, but it, it kind of feels quite shocking in a way, doesn't it? Mm, absolutely. It, because it's someone holding up some kind of mirror, but it's not, if you have been trying to hide and like deal with your shame about how awful you are all your life, but someone then goes, oh my gosh, it's true, you are a bit awful. And then there's a clinical reason. It's it's half, not an excuse, but it's half an explanation. And it's half like, oh crap, I was right all along. Like I am terrible and I have so many flaws. So to get over that to a point of self-compassion, I mean, I'm not, I'm not 100% there yet, I don't think. I don't know if you are. <laughs> People often say about the diagnosis, well, what's the point? What's the point? Why put a label on yourself? To which I say, that is exactly what a neurotypical person would say. And I'm pleased for them that they are able to think like that because I wish I could, but <laughs> it's kind of not how I think, you know. So when you were diagnosed then after that, did it kind of change the way 
in the immediate moment that you kind of thought about your grief and what you'd been through? Yes, I think I definitely realised I was aware that what I'd been through, it was multiple bereavement, you know, that I had, it was just quite an unusual situation to be in, to lose your sister and both your parents in, in three years like that. I suppose I was allowed to feel upset. I'd given myself permission to a degree, but it was this intensity of feeling and the level of hopelessness which came, which which sort of fell upon me whenever I thought of my sister not being here and never seeing her again. I used to think, well, that's because, of course, I attributed that to my fault. That's because you haven't got a husband and kids of your own. You're over-invested in your sister. And I had these fantasy scenarios of that's what everyone would be saying. And possibly they were saying that, but you know what? I believe that you know, my friends are compassionate, lovely people. And most people that I don't even know that maybe were just familiar with me probably would have just thought that poor woman, that's been really tough. But I immediately rushed to make assumptions about what they were thinking based on my own sort of self-critic. So that was partly prompted me to suppress it a bit. And I think I was aware though that this thing called flooding which has been so such a revelation understanding about what flooding is with your brain and it literally it feels like nothing else in the world is happening and that the it's so overwhelming you can literally feel the chemicals in your brain it's a very strange thing and i suppose that's what i would feel is this suddenly it's part of that hyper focus that's all i would focus on and then so because I was feeling upset, I'm going to watch a sad film. I'm going to sit here watching 10 David Bowie videos in a row that my sister loved to make myself feel worse about this because I'm here now and I can't get out. And sometimes that will go on for long periods, you know. And again, it's it's kind of interesting because a lot of what I'm saying, I'm aware that someone who didn't have ADHD might think, well, I've done that. I've watched videos when I've been sad, but it's there's no choice involved it feels like there is literally no choice you're driven by this strange compelling force to just stay in this bubble of intense emotion does that does that sound familiar to you 100 percent. and i think it's also it's my answer to everything whenever anyone says yeah but i do that yeah but i do that is like it's the intensity and the frequency with which that you experience these things that defines your neurodivergence you know that's the and also just shut up like, I'm telling you I've got ADHD and this is what it is. And you either want to support me in that or you don't, like, stop. No, but I do, I do, I want to say, because I understand that. And I do, even doing this podcast, if I'm completely honest, it's my um, goddaughter, Honey, um, did this podcast. And she said, oh, you should do it. And the reason I did it was because um, I am quite in awe of younger women and the way that they are quite fearless about discussing their experiences and emotions and sharing stuff like this and I'm very much from a generation where you unless you were perfect as a woman you were defunct you were useless you were and having talking about things like we're talking about having intense emotions and things then in again that made you a bunny boiler 100% you know that's partly why and when you asked me to do this there was that sort of instinctive panic of oh well god people will know and then I go to a place of thinking, what about all the people that will say ADHD is made up, she just wants attention, she just wants to sound different, or 
Um, it's just an excuse for her poor behavior control. And then I think, yeah, but I'm not talking to them. I'm talking to the people that maybe did feel different like us. And if this helps them, then that's okay. I'll pay that tax. 100%. And do you know what? The We get so many messages from people where it's either, I already knew this was happening to me, but now I connect with someone on a different level. Like it's just, or I didn't know how to articulate it. And now I can, you know, have my mum listen to this and understand me better. Like, yeah, I'm so with you. That negative self-talk is always there, right? Because that's part of who we are having had years of those labels. I mean, this is something that comes up in nearly every single one of these podcast episodes, but like, we're also in grief. We are still kind of controlled by the gender norms. And I think particularly, as you say, us us ladies, um, how did that kind of play in? Because we have this perception of, of the kind of wailing grief that nobody feels comfortable with, no one, you know, how how were you kind of, were you keeping all of that at home? You said that obviously you, you let some of it show. I would show, you know, my, like I say, um, my best friend, Jane, who's Honey's mum, she would, I felt safe there. You know, when I was in um, at, at Jane's house with her family and with her husband and her my godkids, there were a couple of times I remember ringing the bell once, and this was quite you know a few months after the the white heat period of the grief, and I walked in and I just started sobbing, but not sort of I've got a parking ticket sobbing. I mean Greek tragedy, you know, wailing. And it actually makes me cry thinking about it. Oh, God, sorry. <laughs> it no, was no, no, just like, I, oh, sorry, this is really weird. It was really lovely because I, I walked over and none of them said anything. They just, Jane and Jonathan, J- Jane's husband, just, they put their arms around me and then Arnie came over and the whole family were just hugging me and they didn't say anything. And the reason I'm crying um, is because I just felt such unconditional love. <laughs> And I just thought, God, this is so lovely to have this, that they're not saying to me, why are you crying? Why are you crying? But I don't understand. That was two or three years ago. You know, they weren't making demands of me. They weren't, they were just, they just showed me love. And I just suddenly thought, I'm going to be okay. You know, I've got people that really, really care about me. Isn't it weird that's brought up emotions in me now? I don't think I've ever articulated that to anyone and maybe not even them. I mean, I don't think it's weird at all. It's like a huge... But but isn't it amazing as well that I feel like with our kind of the intensity of our emotions, and I'm putting that in quote marks because it's we're just looking at the neurotypical way that people process emotions and that ours is different. But in our intensity of emotional response... It's a it's a beautiful thing as well. Like that's brought you to tears because it was a wonderful <laughs> and life altering moment, right? That you know, yeah. obviously has a horrible, sad thing behind it, but like has taken you to somewhere that's just life affirming and gorgeous. Yeah, and I suppose you feel more deeply. I mean, I love it. I'm so playing into the role of the oh, there she goes, crying at the drop of a hat. <laughs> All the ADHD doubters. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. <laughs> when did you last cry in the middle of a podcast randomly, eh? But I but I know with the highs and lows, I realise that I feel things more intensely. I feel everything more intensely. I've been to people's funerals. You know, there was a guy, I was at the I was working at the Sunday Times and there was a lovely old um, guy who ran the photography picture desk there. He must have been in his 70s or something. Or, you know, he's a real old school, lovely gent. 
who was very sweet and sort of paternalistic and had been lovely and we'd all known him, but I, I hadn't known him that long. And we went to the funeral and I was sobbing. I mean, so hard. And it started to look a bit inappropriate. It was kind of like people were obviously thinking, well, this is a bit weird and probably casting aspersions on this man's character. His poor wife and daughters are probably thinking, you know, I'm some harlot or something. But, and I remember everyone saying, God, you were really upset. You were really upset. You really lost it. And there was, it became a sort of bit of a running joke, you know, when you lost it at the funeral. And I was happy to collude in that. But I felt quite a lot of shame over that because... It was like I was a drama queen. That word, but that, but that's another label that we don't talk about enough, actually. We talk about lazy and stupid and all those horrible things that we're all... But drama queen, I mean, I still am, but grief. Like, no, there's a no, no appropriate way to express our emotions, except that there is this weird societal kind of limit on it, I think. Well, I sometimes think as well with the drama queen thing, you know, also, particularly as a woman, there are such huge negative connotations to that you know notice that my instinctive response was to apologize for crying and i think we know that men get celebrated and lauded for crying in public and people say isn't it wonderful when he's showing his emotion what a great man and we get dismissed as sort of neurotic and high maintenance and highly strong you know it's so interesting to me that that expression of emotion I was again, worked and grew up in a culture where there was a real shame around crying, particularly in a professional environment. And I've always thought it's interesting that that's seen as the worst sin. And yet shouting at people, there was no book called, if you have to shout at people, go outside. You know, that was acceptable to be aggressive, but to just, be sad was not acceptable. So sorry, I'm going off on tangents here, but guess what? You'll understand why. 100%. <laughs> Do you feel that once you'd had the diagnosis, has that changed the way that you process your grief? Do you think? It's changed my life in so many ways. And that's why I really urge people to get it because I'm very evangelical about that because I know a lot of people say, and by the way, how you deal with it is a completely personal decision, which I would never prescribe a, a certain way because what works for some, as you know, doesn't work for everyone. But I do think the diagnosis is really key and can prove a really pivotal turning point professionally, with relationships, with friendships, you know, just because you understand what you're dealing with. And I, I definitely think um, it's changed the way, certainly when I have emotional responses, because the people that are close to me and frankly that matter, you know, are aware of this, I think it's easier for them to manage, you know? And even things that oddly would have provoked what to other people seem like extraordinary outbursts over very trivial things. I think now, for example, you know, my my best mate knows I get in such a panic over being late because my whole life, it's a triggering thing. I If I'm five, six minutes late, I go back to all those incidents in my childhood, all those incidents in my adulthood, when I've let people down, when I felt shame over that, when I've not known what was wrong with me and why can't I just bloody turn up on time like every other normal person and get it right? So I think, as a very long-winded answer, how it's changed my life on a it's two ways. I mean, on a practical level, with things like being disorganised, losing things, leaving things behind, constantly being late, 
which again, I always used to mask. So a lot of people will say, but you weren't that type of person because I hid it. I would lie. I would never say to someone or I'd come up with excuses, you know, or someone I remember would look at my phone and say, you've got 3000 unread emails. And I say, oh no, it's because I didn't on my inbox. And, and then I go into the loo and cry. I get it's just there's just like endless shame isn't there about being, being who you are and it not being a, a nice package for the rest of the world I think yeah, yeah. I've realized now that with stuff like that I manage it by telling people and just by telling people that becomes much easier and you know what there are some people and I understand that They've, everyone's got their own issues who really feel quite triggered by people who are late and it brings up big emotions in them and I've had to with reluctance except that I can't really be close to those people, which sounds a bit tough. But I realise if I, you know, obviously there are things like flights you've got to make and commitments to work and keeping someone waiting at the theatre. All those things, I can, I can just about pull that off, but it requires a great deal of planning and thought and mental exhaustion getting to that place. So... When I'm seeing friends and just socialising, going around for lunch and it's a casual Sunday, if I then feel that same level of stress, it's not fun for me. I need to, you know, it's just that feeling of acceptance. Um, so I suppose people who are more tightly wired about stuff like that, I've had to say a polite, keep a polite distance, you know, just because I'm just not the right friend for them. You know, <laughs> um, I'm never going to be able to give them what they want, essentially. But I certainly think in terms of the emotions, I'm much less hard on myself. You know, even the other day, I had a little cry about my sister and it was really lovely. And I, I was much less sort of, why am I crying? This is who I am and it means I feel things. And if the tax on that is people thinking I'm a bit weird, they can think that, I don't mind. I'm, I like being a feeler. That, please don't take that quote out of context. <laughs> That's a whole other podcast. <laughs> That's going to be an ad on Instagram before you can say ADHD, my friend. The second series of Is It My ADHD is made possible by our sponsor, To Better Days. Chronic pain and migraines are a well-documented comorbidity of ADHD. It's something we often see within our community. It is also an issue that, like ADHD, can be wildly difficult to pin down and find support for. 70% of those who experience chronic pain are women, and on average, it takes more than seven years to obtain a diagnosis. Two Better Days is keen to support and empower the chronic pain community, not just with their drug-free pain relief patches for migraines and chronic pain, but by giving those affected a voice and really listening to understand the daily challenges of self-advocacy and effective pain management. Everyone's pain is different and complex, and Two Better Days don't overpromise. But their hope is that a patch you can pop in your pocket in case of a flare can ease your day. They have also given listeners of this podcast 10% off all products if you use the code GRACE10. Thank you so much to Better Days. I think I want to hear about your dog um, because I know that he has been such a huge part of this new chapter in your life. I mean, look at him. I wish podcast uh, listeners, you could see his face. He looks at me a little bit nonchalantly. I'm not going to lie. Do you know, he's got a slight air of superiority, which I, qu I quite like to encourage. And he should. Um, he's got that air of, really? I mean, I guess. What can you do for me? 
Well, it was interesting that I'd never had a dog. It had always been my dream. And then, of course, I associated them with families and I'd never sort of hit those beats, those traditional family beats. So I thought, well, I again, I can't get a dog. And of course I thought, but what if I get the wrong one? What if I get one that no one likes? And what if people say this? And what if I call it the wrong thing? And it's, you know, it's so weird, isn't it? It's all I could think. What will people say? What will... And then, of course, with grief, that really did change things because you get a lot less concerned. So in some ways, the grief was quite oddly beneficial for my ADHD because I just thought I can't be worrying to this degree because this is literally all I'll be doing. So I just I brought him into my life. Again, just my experience is if you're at all neurodivergent, I think dogs are I mean, I think they're incredible for everyone, but feeling completely unjudged and just feeling love unconditionally love for who I was and being tolerated for my quirks and however I behaved, they were there. And I feel this about my dog Raymond that, you know, it's um, dogs have a clean mental slate and they reboot constantly and it's they're very emotionally healthy. So they don't say to you, they don't say anything to you, let's be honest, but <laughs> they don't give off the energy of, yeah, you know what, I'm just, I'm just, thinking about something you once said in 1998 and it's really upset me again um, because they reboot every day and they don't hold on to stuff. It's a very pure love that you get from them. I just think it's an incredible, he's utterly, utterly life-changing. You know, just I wake up in the morning and I've actually, I know this sounds weird, but I feel I can tell you anything. Um, I once took a video of myself. I'm not, evolved enough yet to be able to share something like this online which maybe I should one day but I was so upset and I was sobbing having one of those moments probably a couple of years ago just missing my sister felt visceral the pain and Ray jumped up on me and I was still sobbing and I don't know why I did this I thought I'm going to record this moment because I knew I could feel his energy making me feel good and I thought I want to remember what it's like, you know, because he won't always be here. And I just, I loved how I could feel his energy, but I mainly just thought I want to record this for myself to show myself, just to show the journey out of a feeling like that. And he jumped up on me and I'm sobbing and sobbing and sobbing. And then he starts licking my face and I stopped even being aware of recording myself. And I am crying with laughter. And it's that 60 second transformation you know, which is slightly to do with being sunshine and showers type person, but also just the power of that kind of love where it's like, you're really sad and I'm going to try and help it. And I'm prepared to sacrifice my dignity by <laughs> making myself look ridiculous, which he does on a daily basis, to be fair. <laughs> we have a cat, which is a lockdown kitten and does provide very much that same, just stillness. Having to, if someone sits on your lap, you can't move. You have to just be in that moment and stroke them and do whatever um, and hope they don't scratch <laughs> you. Um, so it is, I totally understand. And I've, I've been really interested in that, in in why I desperately wanted something else in our house that would give us that um, and that they can fulfil that role. I think it's incredible. Well, I think also, and I certainly felt with grief, I suppose I felt in some ways my family, even though... Like I say, they were artsy bohemian weirdos, but they were my artsy bohemian weirdos. They were my weirdos. And 
I only realised that it was, you know, it was a long process in a sense, realising how comfortable actually I was one of them. I was almost fighting my difference. You know, I'm normal and I'm with these weirdos. And of course, I wasn't normal. You know, <laughs> I certainly felt in some ways, and again, I don't know if this is something you relate to, but um, my family were probably the only people, well, they were. My family were the only people that had ever seen the unedited me in not masking, you know? And it's why I always sort of, I didn't realise this until I got older, but even with my relationships when I was younger, there was, they were always like, and I really feel sorry for some lovely guys, or you know, that I dated. And they were probably getting this sense. One tried to articulate it once, and of course I dismissed him, but I dismissed it because it was true. And he said, but I just feel I don't quite get all of you. It's like there's something being held back and... Of course, he was absolutely right. He was picking up on the fact that there was, you know, I was sort of hiding the essence of me because I thought, oh, if they see the real me. And I think with my parents um, and my sister, they were the only human beings alive that had ever witnessed that. So as well as mourning all of them as individuals, I had that sense of my sort of the only fellow witnesses to all this stuff had gone. And that's why, I guess... That was part of the grief, maybe. That was part of my emotional response was, who can I talk to about this? You know, I can ring my sister up and just unleash the flood on her. And she knows how to stop the flood and she understands me and she doesn't ring someone up an hour later and go, you know, Emily called me and was really weird. I think she's really neurotic. In my head, that's what anyone normal would do because I was a freak, you know. So, yeah, I think getting the dog was really important because I felt... He didn't care how weird I was. And frankly, he can talk. I mean, he can't, but I felt seen with him because he's quite odd. I mean, it is interesting I picked such a strange dog. You know, I didn't go Labrador. Do you know what I mean? I picked sort of a weird dog that people say, he's very odd, isn't he? And I wonder on some level if I've picked a very, very strange looking dog who looks like a sort of miniature Wookiee because the first thing people say is, your dog's very odd. Do they really say that? Yeah. I take huge offence at that. I think he's <laughs> gorgeous. And also, you don't know him. Like, no, I won't have that. The, I think what is really interesting about what you've just said is that you were saying goodbye to your family, but you were also saying goodbye to that part of yourself that was completely you and open. And has, has Raymond kind of brought that person back a little bit or given that person space? Yeah, I think what it means, I mean, all those eccentricities about me, I think I'm certainly, um, since my family has gone, I'm much more open, again, with this close circle of friends, not with, you know, everybody, but certainly with people I trust and love and that are close to me, I'm much more, um, I suppose, authentic, you know, and I will often refer to it, which I never thought I'd be in a position to do that, where I'll say oh, you know what I'm like, I get stressed, you know. So it's, if someone tells me to come for dinner at seven, I'll say, I used to have a panic attack if I'd get there on time and everyone else was already there. Because I think, but I was told to come at seven, I've tried so hard to be on time and already I'm late. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but that was how I would feel. And so again, my friends kind of manage that and, and the ones that don't, you know, 
it's just not going to work. You know? <laughs> but the majority of my friends just manage that and say, just so you know, it's fine. But yeah, so I, I kind of feel that just being able to be more authentic or saying, it's really weird, isn't it? Do you find this that it, I never thought ever I'd be able to say to a friend, I'm just feeling a bit low. I'm feeling sad about this. I mean, I would, but not that I always felt there had to be some compelling reason. Whereas now I can just say, oh, I just feel really low. Or, you know, I'm thinking about my sister or something like that. It just, I feel far less pressure um, in that regard. And you don't realise, and again, I'm going to bang on about this diagnosis, you know, bore everyone, but there's a lot of isolation, which people never talk about with um, ADHD. There can be. And I think for me as someone who hadn't married and didn't have kids, I think I realised certainly during the pandemic, like that was so important, you know, reaching out to people that I cared about and loved and my friends had sort of become my family. And part of it was, you know, feeling my house had to be perfect before anyone saw it. And, oh my God, there's a stain on the sofa. Oh my God, there's a cup in the sink. Getting it into show home condition. And of course, what it means is that you never ask anyone around because you think, I don't want them to see the imperfect version of me. Um, but of course, what you don't realise is they're thinking, oh God, I better not invite Emily around. Her place is a bit, you know, sparkling. It's so painful, isn't it? Because it's like, what happened to make you feel like that's the thing that was going to make you acceptable? It's like, you can't control like the emotional response to things or if you make weird comments or you miss cues or any of those things. So what you can control is what you look like, what the room looks like. all of That's shitty, it's so shitty. And actually, like you say, that doesn't have the desired effect either because sometimes people walk into your house and think, holy crap, it's like someone was murdered here and then you've done, you know, you've had to clear it all up or something. And it and it would take me hours because I actually, and now, again, this has been a lifetime's work to get to a point where it's a routine. You can get into habits with ADHD, which is good. You need to use that to your advantage and think, which is why I've never played any kind of video games on Nintendo or... And I explain that to people that it's, I will get into hyper-focus and that is all I will do. Can't do gambling, can't do anything like that. People will just do this game, it'll be fun. No, because I will literally do only that for the rest of my life. So I've realized if I start those habits, if every day, and raise help with that routine, which is why if you have ADHD, get a dog, you'll, you'll get into the, fo the autopilot, auto-focusing. So you're like, right, okay, I get up, I do the dishwasher, I feed rain, the cleaning is now part of that. It's about living an authentic life. That's all you can really do. And um, again, brings me back to why I want to do this podcast. You know, if I'm upset about my sister, which, you know, I still think about her every day, every day. And it's kind of weird because I know she and I were unusually bonded. I suppose we had a very intense, loving relationship, partly because we were brought up in slightly unique circumstances. Again, I don't know that's something you can relate to. Um, and as I, I suppose as I get older, I feel how lovely that I'm honoring that relationship. And I know it wouldn't work for everyone. And a lot of people think, well, they're gone now, you've got to move on, of course. You know, I'm not gonna sit here for the rest of, you know, I'm not gonna be at her grave every single day. Um, I need to live my life, but equally just um, how lovely to have had that relationship. And, you know, sometimes I think with 
having ADHD or being a neurodivergent in any way. And as a result of that, I feel things a bit more deeply and how lovely that I got to feel that much love for her. I think that's a really beautiful note to end on, Emily, although I could sit here speaking to you all day and the beautiful Raymond, who doesn't look weird at all, just looks utterly gorgeous and loving and slightly aloof. Um, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your experiences. Um, and the book is just luminescent and you must read it. It's so excellent. And to also laugh so much within an experience of grief, it's such, it's just, yeah, it's a game changer. So thank you for sharing that with us as well. We now turn to an expert. Now I feel very lucky to welcome Dr. Jo Steer to the podcast. She is a chartered clinical psychologist working with children in Surrey and the author of Understanding ADHD in Girls and Women, which has become my Bible. Is it my ADHD when I find huge comfort in a pet? So pets pets are brilliant um, and they can really help children and adults reduce their feelings of stress. And in fact, research has shown that stroking a pet can reduce your blood pressure and your feelings of anxiety. So there's no wonder that you find comfort in, in a pet. Um, it helps us produce those happy hormones and reduce our stress hormones in our body. So there's actually a physical um, thing going on here in our bodies when we have a pet. And I think we know that pets, particularly dogs, they seem to gravitate towards uh, people if they're feeling a bit stressed or sad. So they, they kind of have a sense for that. So they can be a real comfort in that way. The, the other thing is that pets provide uh, consistency and routine, and this can really help people with ADHD um, with their kind of daily living it will guide them through that and often they can also help us deal with some tricky social situations if you feel a bit awkward actually if you've got your cute dog with you then you can just all talk about the dog and it reduces that kind of pressure on social interactions they also provide that non-judgmental um they don't talk back they don't get upset and disappointed and make demands of you other than obviously being fed and walked um and so that can feel like a different kind of companionship with less pressure than some of the interactions that we have as humans on a daily basis with each other which can often feel quite pressured and, and stressful and we know can be quite difficult if you've got adhd Thank you so much for joining me and this community of amazing people. We'd love it if you could follow Is It My ADHD wherever you get your podcast from. And now I'd love to hear from you. What other perspectives would you like to see explored in future episodes? Find me on Instagram at Is It My ADHD to continue the conversation. <laughs>